Hey everyone, it is June 17th, 2017, and this is your episode 99 of Ep Percussion. With me as usual are Laura Black. Hi. And Ben Charles. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Yep, doing just fine. How's your summer? It's good. I ran my first ever 5K today. Oh, that's right. Yeah. What is that, what I is came that in first like? in my age group. Sorry, say again. I, I said I came in first in my age group. <laughs> good for you. That's a, Yeah, that's amazing, dude. Way to go. How did you train for a 5K? Uh, I trained for exactly four days. <laughs> I had a couple of students that said they were doing it on, I think it was Tuesday. No, it was Monday. I was like, all right, I'll do that with you guys. So um, I ran 5K one day, 2K the next day, 5K the next day, then rested for a day. <laughs> and that was it. Good for you. Dude. What was your time if you came in first in your age group? It was like 27. Not That's great. But... For like your first 5K? Yeah. <laughs> Without any training. Yeah. <laughs> it's all that never drinking beer with us. <laughs> all that refusing to drink beer with us has finally paid off. <laughs> so you guys, our guest today has played percussion in the San Francisco Opera Orchestra since 1992. She's a graduate of the Eastman School of Music Preparatory Department. And she's earned her BM from Juilliard in 1987. She's also, oh, excuse me, she was a member of the New World Symphony in Miami from 1988 to 1992. And I read that directly from her fantastic book called Sticking It Out, uh, From Juilliard to the Orchestra Pit, a Percussionist Memoir. So welcome, Patty Nimi. How's it going? Thank you very much. I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, sure. You're welcome. And thanks for having a bio in your book. I usually have to do a little research and write the bio for everybody, but this time I just, I just skipped it. So, <laughs> so man, tell, tell us a little about this book. I, I actually, I got hip to it because my department chair named Jeff Bush, who is also a percussionist, he said, I read this, picked this up and I read it on a plane and I really enjoyed it. And I said, Oh great. You know what? I'll, might be a nice like faculty party conversation thing. So I picked it up and yeah, I just, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So yeah. Thanks Jeff for recommending the book to us. And yeah, you want to just tell us a little, a little about it, maybe why you wrote it. Sure. I always wanted to write period. Um, that was the only other passion I had besides playing music. I wanted to win an audition and write a book. So after winning an audition and, getting around to that. Then it took me about another 20 years to get a book out. So delayed gratification is a really good thing for musicians to have. And apparently for writers too. Um, it just took a really long time. It was a great process. It was a lot of fun, but it was similar in that there are a lot of rejections that go with it. Just like with uh, music, with auditions, I probably sent out about 75 queries, which are essentially just cold calls to agents, cold letters to agents. I sent them out so long ago that um, they were snail mail initially. That's how long ago. So, and then about six years later, I found an agent and managed to, she found a publisher for me. So that's so how I it is. I had a question about the, the writing process. Did you, I, it's, from what I can read, it seems like you sat down and just did this all on your own. Did you have any sort of, I mean, obviously you had an editor, but did you have any sort of help like Donald Trump or was this all on your own? <laughs> Yeah, just nope. like Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't want to be anything like him. So yeah, no, I did. I had no help. I had plenty of great readers, though. I mean, so as far as sitting down and writing it, that was all 
uh, doing it myself. First, I wrote really, really badly and then got better over time, which is kind of how everything happens. And um, I have a like a lot of people in my family are writers. So I give it to them and say, tell me what doesn't make sense. What can I do better? And something that was really important was um, finding someone as a reader who wasn't a musician. Because as musicians, as we know, it's like so much is obvious to us. Everything is kind of inside baseball. We know what we're talking about. So to have any kind of appeal to non-musicians, which I was hoping to do, um, I kind of needed someone to look at it and say, well, what in the world does this mean? You know, we're talking about practicing triangle and they're thinking, what do you mean you practice triangle? So I, know, I think it's, it out. it's actually really good that you did that because so many non-musicians are just completely confused by the whole like audition process and all. And you even talk about in your book, like, you know, the, you had this was, I think it was a horn player and a bassoon player or something like that. And you were like, you know, people would just assume, oh, the bassoon player could win a job in the same city as her husband. And it's like, yeah, probably not actually. <laughs> yeah. There are so many assumptions that there are so many things we know that we don't even know we know, you know, having grown up in music. We, we start when we're so young. It's like they're just part of our skin and other non-musicians would not necessarily know. There, there's something I've had to explain to my, to, to family members before, because they'll say, well, Casey, you're, you're, you're really good at this stuff, right? Like you could, you could just go get a, a job in whatever city you want and play in any, any symphony orchestra you want, right? Aren't those, aren't those, you know, aren't there a lot of appealing places and, I mean, they learned long ago, like, yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> like, I, could, yeah. I, I think I am, I would be able to join the audition circuit, but, you know, like you describe in your book that you got to just do that, you know, I mean, it's just extremely competitive and extremely, extremely difficult. And yeah, I mean, just have to really be dedicated. So on that note, Patty, I had a question um, because it sounds like from your, you're talking about Juilliard in the book and it sounds like uh how how am i trying to say this it wasn't the most ideal of situations and that you weren't in some sort of glorious apartment there weren't tons of beautiful practice rooms available all that sort of thing and i've always wondered do you think that if that was the case where it was just sort of easy in the the sense of living do you think that you would have been pushed as far or were those crappy conditions sort of a driving force to make you want to get better i think that's a great question actually i've thought about that a lot because there were you know if you if you're going to make it you know in music or anything in life if you're going to achieve a goal you're going to have to have disappointments and rejection and delayed gratification and fight your way through a lot of failure, you know, not really failure, but momentarily momentary failure. You have all these potholes to get through. So I think having, having more of them might make you fight harder. And for, certainly for me, there was, there was a little bit of glamor about, you know, Juilliard was a dump at the time that, you know, no practice rooms, no place to play um, far too many people there for the amount of space we had pretty poor quality instruments and you know the places we lived were just beyond dumps you know roach fields roach motels for most of us and certainly for me and and i guess when you're young that that feels like an adventure it's easy to say now i mean when i had a roach crawling up my nose i didn't think it was an adventure and i really did one night so that was not so much an adventure but now it seems kind of interesting to me gotcha yeah, i've i've made the joke many times that the orchestral audition circuit is a great career path for people with rich parents. 
If you have someone that could just be your patron and support you the whole time and could fly you all over the nation to take auditions, I'm sure eventually you would win. But um, one of my favorite quotes I've come across in your book, I'd like to read it for everyone here, was, the truth was most of the students I've been sitting with at orientation would not get jobs in music. We were beginning a long, winnowing process. Those who ran out of time, money, stamina, or courage would fall by the roadside. And it's so true and so heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you just made a good point about money. You know, while I'm saying that, you know, oh, we lived in dumps or we lived in uh, not very fancy apartments, it still was the case that I had support from my parents to go to school. And I can't imagine the amount of time you have to, with the amount of time you have to put in, how anybody who didn't have that kind of support could make it. So in a way, I'm joking, you know. It's like yeah. for all, we joke about that. It's really the case that I had plenty of parental support. And yeah. with that comes the freedom to spend all day long practicing. I, I have a student, actually, one of my best students I've ever had, that when he when he turned 18, he has a very good relationship with his parents. But when he turned 18, they said, you're an adult. And they cut him off completely. And the thing that has impressed me so much about that student is that he manages to practice and take care of everything in spite of having to work to pay his rent, which I never had to do when I was an undergrad. So, yeah. yeah. That's, that's amazing. Good for him. Well, and speaking of money, it's nice how you tell your story. And I, I really get a sense of your age as the book goes on and somewhere towards the end, I guess, I think you're you're either at the tail end of Juilliard or you're at New World in the book. I, I think it's New World because I think you you mentioned Doug. Um, and it's um, you guys decide you can go audition together. And it becomes much more practical to practice for the auditions together and travel together and, and that sort of thing. Um, speaking of the, uh, how you wrote the book, I think the book is a really just tell all very honest, really open. How did also, you screenplay? <laughs> I mean, it's that good. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> how, how did you decide the, the boundaries of what you would share and like how much you would tell and maybe how much you would, you would not tell. And, um, did those boundaries ever ever shift or did you ever cross that line and then and did the line ever move around or anything like that for me that's a great question because as you can read i'm a really really anxious person and mostly it comes down to being anxious about social relationships and you know have i hurt someone's feelings have i crossed a boundary with someone so for me putting it out there i mean this is what i always wanted to do it was always the goal but when i finally thought okay it's going to be published i had like a year-long panic attack you know thinking like, am I going to hurt someone's feelings? Is someone going to be offended by what I've said? And I really, at that point, had to make sure that I kept rereading it and thinking, I haven't said any, I certainly said nothing that was not true, but that's not an excuse to, um, you know, heap scorn upon someone or, or blame or, you know, I, I just tried to be as fair as I could be. Did you, talk, did you talk to any of the people and, and, you know, say what you were saying and like ask for approval or you just kind of went for it? Not really. Um, I, I sort of made some people aware that it was going to happen. And, and my only concern in that case was, I mean, I've stayed close to the players, you know, many of the players in it um, my whole life, and they're still friends and very close ones. So I just made them aware. And my only concern was, well, they're really private people. So even though I didn't say anything negative about them, would they be offended or upset because they're very private? You know, I changed names, but we all know each other. It's not, it's not that much of a 
surprise or mystery. The only thing, obviously, was my relationship with my teacher at Juilliard, and he's long been uh, passed away, mm-hmm. maybe about 10 years now. So I would say that part made it a little, little easier. Mm-hmm. And there were certainly things I left out. There were, um, I, I tried very hard. The, the things that I left out were things that I didn't remember verbatim. So I didn't put anything in there as a quote that wasn't written down shortly thereafter. Um, so that was my main concern was being as honest as I could be. Yeah, sure. Well, just to give uh, the listeners a, uh, a, a glimpse into what we're talking about, I have a little, just a little something I found from SanFranciscoChronicle.com. And it's describing uh, Patty's book and referring to some, some of the time at Juilliard. It says, the school demanded perfection from students, and this eventually placed Nimi in a horrible situation. One of her instructors, a longtime teacher at Juilliard, she identifies in her book as Richard, began to aggressively sexually harass her. There were no clear-cut channels for reporting this kind of gross misbehavior, and what's more... Even if there were, Nimi wasn't sure she could afford to complain. And then a quote from Patty. He could continue to teach me. He could perhaps recommend me for auditions, write me a letter of recommendation for certain things or not, Nimi explained. Even 30 years later, I can look back and say, would I do something differently? I still don't know. So I, I think it's really important that you you share that. And I have to say... Of myself, one time I saw something from a teacher that um, I saw a butt slapping, and and actually the student who I stood up for, I, I bumped into her recently, maybe one one or two years ago, and she remembered this, and I had kind of forgotten about it, but um, she was walking out the door, and this guy slapped her, and we were in rehearsal and all the other male students just were kind of stunned and I slammed my mallets down on either the marimba or the vibraphone I forgot what I was playing and I just said yo I yelled yo what the fuck I was really and I and of course all those thoughts came into my head of wait a minute this is uh this could hurt you letters of recommendation um all these things but I, and I'm so glad I, I don't know. I just want to tell everyone that decision did not hurt me in the slightest. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 I'm bragging a little, but I also would just like to share. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's certainly the climate changes, you know, frequently. Um, the climate for me, hard to believe, but you know, 30 years ago now, 30 plus years, um, it wasn't talked about or, uh, we, didn't talk about it at all. So, and I, I sort of explained the evolution of my thinking, which was starting with Anita Hill, that incredibly gr- brave woman. And um, it, it's easy to look at her now and think, to watch those hearings and say, well, of course, that's that's common sense, that of course she would say things like that. But I tell you, at the time, it was dumbfounding. I mean, we were watching on, you know, however many channels that we had at the time, like three, you know, this is many years ago. And every channel was devoted to the hearings. We were watching her. And I was just blown away. And the one takeaway I had was, wow, it's about power. It's not about sex. That was the main things that confused me was, well, okay, he's not, he's not, except for one or two times, 
he's not deliberately doing something physical. Um, I mean, there were those instances too, but they weren't the majority of what was happening to me. It was, it was sort of this psychological um, oppression by someone who was really powerful over me. And so I kept thinking, well, okay, it's not that bad. It's not, you know, it's not physical. And then I watched her and I thought, oh, it doesn't matter that it's not physical. He's still right. powerful. And it's still really, after a year and a half of it was just way too much. It was just, it was just too much. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Well, and even though now it's, I mean, we certainly talk about it a lot now, like thankfully these types of topics, but there's still, there's so much resistance. Like if you bring it up, like this happened to me or this person used to treat me this way. There's always like people out there that are like, really? But did they really, yes. you know, Some there's such doubt, yeah. even though, you know, like I, I've, I've experienced um, something in my life, not exactly like what you did, Patty, but it was actually growing up one of my friend's fathers that, oh, wow. like, did the same thing, never, like, you know, touched me or anything like that, but and I kept saying to other adults in my life, like, this guy pushed me out, I don't like it, and they didn't believe me. They said I was being self-centered, and then it eventually, like, he, he said, I'm going to leave my wife for you, and, like, there was this whole thing, and... Yeah, and, and then I, I just went home to my parents and, like, freaked out. Yeah. And then everybody believed me. But I was curious how old were you? I was, uh, like, 21. Yeah, so, like, old enough to, to where I, like, I just said to him, this is not appropriate, I'm leaving. You know, wow. and, and luckily there we were not in any type of direct power relationship. You know, so... Yeah. Yeah, he so, wasn't your boss. Yeah, or... I wasn't. I was. I was gonna lose nothing by telling him off. But I, you know, I feel like I was raised well because all I said was, "This is not appropriate. I'm leaving." But really, I should have like thrown things at him, and I should have like keyed his car. <laughs> <laughs> I should have had such a reaction. Um, but yeah, like sometimes people don't believe you even when you say yeah. it. You know, just like this Anita woman, and you know, so many other people. Yeah. Ben, Ben, now that I've learned you've run a 5K and you're in such good shape, we're gonna wait till this guy's a little older, then we're gonna go. We're gonna go, we're gonna go tune him up. You got it. He's probably pretty old by now. We could probably do it. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a question, Ben? Yeah. So this is going a little off topic, but uh, in graduate school, I had to to do a project on Strauss, and. One of the pieces I had to research was the Strauss burlesque. And I was fascinated by this piece because when he originally composed it, it was said it would be, it was so difficult that it was completely unplayable. No one in the world could play it. And so I think he, he might have revised it, reworked it a little bit. And then the quote was that no woman could ever play it. it oh. A woman didn't have the power to play this piece. It had to be played by a man, which was just mind blowing because if you've seen Martha Argerich play it, she kills it. <laughs> That's and one thing I was like, I was very surprised by in reading the early, the earlier parts of your book is it didn't seem like in the 1980s, there was an attitude like that against women in music. And this is pre Evelyn Blenny post Keiko Abe, I guess. So there was somewhat of a precedent with Abe, but there weren't too many female role models for percussion that you had to look up to. So did you feel that you needed those role models? Did you feel there just there wasn't that attitude that female percussionists couldn't make it? What was your sort of take on that? I know you talked about it a little bit, but not too, too much. 
it was um, I, I tried to tread pretty lightly there because for the most part, I didn't have any bad experiences, I would say, um, because I'm a woman. That's undeniable. So um, my teacher at Eastman Pre-College was a woman. Successful. Uh, she played in the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra for many years. She was my teacher. She's my mentor. Greatest, most wonderful woman. So I had her. Who was that? Because you didn't name her by name, I don't think. I dedicated the book to her. Oh, come yeah. on, Ben. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> I, I never made that clear. Yeah. No, she's still a wonderful fan, friend. She just retired uh, within this month from teaching. Um, she's an extraordinary teacher. Um, so I had that example. And I have three sisters, and my parents were very, you know, never occurred to them to tell us what we could or couldn't do. They were delighted with anything we wanted to try. So in most ways, it never bothered me. I would get the occasional comments, which, yes, to Ruth Kahn, thank you. <laughs> You're holding up the book. Um, in, in most ways, it never bothered me. Although, if I think back, I can think of the, the comments made here or there, which, you know, in a way, you just keep brushing them off, and that gets a little bit tiring. So I did get some of those, but I would say nothing that affected me. What did affect me was the power relationship, and that could have happened whether it happened to be because I was a girl. I was most definitely a girl, not a woman, and uh, he was a much older, powerful man who was my teacher. So that was a consequence of being a woman in that world. But it certainly happens to men. It happens with, you know, gay and straight relationships or not relationships, but power relationships. Do you find and I didn't mean to get into this heavy subject this quickly in the podcast. So it's definitely my responsibility on that one. But do you, do you find this what we're talking about right now is often what people are, I don't know, kind of the the biggest issue in the book? And the, the I, I, I'm not, I don't know what I'm quite trying to ask, but like the, the strongest portion of the story. Uh, it's two things. It's anxiety and sexual harassment. Yeah. Uh, I would say with anxiety being the overwhelming thing that people, if they come to me and say, hey, I read your book, this is what happened to me. They usually want to talk about anxiety. And that's wonderful for me. It's like, it's a connection. Mm -hmm. And I also, I think I've made it pretty clear that I wasn't really talking to anybody about anxiety at the time because there was this feeling, I mean, I got the feeling, I don't know if other people did, that you had to, um, you know, man up and just try to, try to muscle through it. And if you had anxiety, you kept it to yourself. And if you were taking Indoral, you kept it to yourself. That's certainly what I did. And come to find all these years later that, you know, people come to me and say, well, I was tremendously anxious too. So I would say that's the majority of what people want to talk about. Although not to take away from the fact that I've gotten plenty of women who come to me and say, well, this is what happened to me with regard to my teacher or a conductor or, I mean, there, there's plenty of that too. And it's not just the older folks like me. So speaking of anxiety, I, I kind of find in the book and in my life, there, there are two types of anxiety. I would call it Short term, which is getting anxious for an audition, and basically once audition's over, it's gone. But the bigger one is long-term anxiety, and I have another quote from the book, um, and you said, it's the uncertainty of auditions, the not knowing when or if it'll ever happen that is hardest to accept. How do you plan a life when you have one big unanswered question? And I, I don't, I'm sure Casey and Laurel have had the same feeling, but for me, once I finished my doctorate, I was teaching part-time at a university, 
and I was sending out job application after job application to universities and was literally getting nowhere, not a single phone interview or anything. And my the first interview I got actually was around the 20th application I had sent out. And it was I, I knew at that point I had to get that job and it's the job I have now. And I did. Um, but, yeah, could you talk a little bit to your sort of long term anxiety and once you finally got a job, did it feel, and I haven't gotten to this part in the book, so maybe you do, but once you finally got a job, did it feel like that was lifted off your shoulders or did you still have like emotional scars from that or what happened with that? That's another good question. Uh, the long-term anxiety was definitely like you said. Um, if I could have said to myself, well, I'm going to take 20 auditions and I will win the 20th, if somehow that was, you know, a fairy granted that. That would be easy. Because you would still be left with a tremendously hard work and not to take away from the hard work. But it's the anxiety that just kills you every day. You know, am I ever going to get a job? So when I did, it was just replaced by other anxieties, you know? So I guess that means I'm just an anxious person. And I mean, for instance, one of the big anxieties I had was, okay, you know, this is a great job. I really like this job. And I'm, delighted and happy and I love it more and more the more I'm here but in terms of orchestral percussion it's probably safe to say that it's a little more uh, prestigious to be on stage in a symphonic ensemble so I thought okay that's my next conquest I need to audition for a symphonic you know symphony orchestra I need to move up the food chain and get to the best orchestra I can be and be principal and I just had a complete breakdown over trying to take another audition it just I completely lost it at that point and I have not taken another audition and fortunately for me this is a great job and I'm I'm lucky I find but also I'm once you get over that once you get to the plateau of anxiety if you will once you win the audition or the college job or whatever you start to realize all the other parts of your life that you sort of put on hold for <laughs> for this music thing and I know I don't I don't I wouldn't say I lose sleep over it but you do sort of think about like oh well I'm 30 and I don't have a family and most people around me now are married and having kids and that sort of thing. So I, I find that's another source of anxiety that pops up once that first one goes away. You kind of go, oh, shoot, what what happened with the rest of my life? It's amazing how many sources of anxiety there are out there, right? I mean, and I replaced it with writing, too. It was the same thing. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm seven, you know, I'm 74 query letters in. Am I ever going to get this published? And some of that is just bullheadedness, like, all right, I'm going to keep beating my head against this wall until it happens. But that doesn't take away anxiety. And I, I found plenty of places, plenty of things to be anxious out, I, I, about. I'm sure there are more that I haven't even discovered. It's funny because it seems like music is a terrible career field for anyone with anxiety, but it's also that anxiety that makes you do it. <laughs> it's addictive. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Is Anxiety is not a terrible thing. It can be good. You can harness it for good or evil. And when you can harness it and say, you know, if, if you had no anxiety, would you ever get out of bed? You'd just sit there and eat donuts and get fat and, you know, watch TV. So it's not a terrible thing. It just has to be managed. And I probably go in the direction of having way more than is helpful. Yeah, I think, I mean, anxiety and drive are very closely related. Right. Well, speaking of how much anxiety it brought to you taking a, another audition since the opera, do, do you think, I, I guess I heard about a recent audition, and knowing who was in the finals and they picked no one makes me think, is 
you know, and of course I've never been on the circuit, you know, um, but I've, you know, I've, I've been to school and I've done mock auditions and I've prepared lists and all of that. It, it does make me think, okay, well, if neither of those guys were good enough, there's something wrong with, with what's going on. You know what I mean? Or when you find out someone amazing didn't get tenure, you're like, yeah, like, uh, Cleveland and Boston, both relatively recently, you're going, Oh my God, like if he couldn't get tenure, who could? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, what do you think about that, Patty? Well, with, with respect to the audition part, having been on the other side of the audition screen many times now, I, I at least can say, I do see how it happens. It's still horrible when it happens. I've never been on a percussion audition because, um, my section mate and I are both still there all this time, but, um, having been on like violin auditions or bassoon, whatever it, it happens because you have a committee of people. You, it's not just one person making a decision, in which case you can pretty much find someone good enough. There are so many unbelievable players out there, but when you have a committee, there are differing opinions on what's great. And you might get to the end of three days and 75 people and not have picked the right people necessarily and just not agree on the ending. So I see how it happens, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I think it's so painful for everybody involved. You know, the people who show up and pay all the money when they're the people who necessarily no, don't necessarily have the most money to spend. They're students. So it, it's it's really painful to, to and, and the part about tenure, I would say, um, without any specific examples, I can think of it happening in my own orchestra again. And it's usually not the case that the playing doesn't work. It's something, you know, maybe there's a personality issue. Maybe there's um, some genuine concerns about playing in the orchestra, time, timing-wise, fitting in, um, especially when you're playing in a pit. Being in a pit is pretty tough where you have close quarters. Yeah, so, sure. Again, it probably comes down to just differing opinions, and and it's utterly painful when it happens. Nobody goes into uh, an audition and then a two-year tenure process hoping it fails. It's it's horrible when it happens. Sure, of course. You know, you know. Speaking of keeping the job, you tell a great story in your book when you just got to New World and you talk about bringing what was the Juilliard mentality and attitude with you. And again, this is one of those kind of tell all moments that you were kind enough to share where you, you just had a bad attitude and you were telling your section mates, you're playing that bad. You shouldn't do it this way. And, uh, you should do it that way instead. And Doug confronts you about it and, and your attitude just totally, uh, totally changes. Yeah. It's, it's really embarrassing. That particular anecdote is pretty embarrassing, but it's absolutely true. I just got down there thinking that, okay, well, here in New York, we're very aggressive, or this is my perception, obviously. This is no one else's saying this, but my perception was, okay, you're really aggressive. You tell people what to do. You, we, we told each other how to play all the time. That was not considered uh, aggressive at, at Juilliard. That was normal. Here we are in New York. We're telling each other what we think when nobody's asking your opinion. So I went to Miami sort of thinking that that's how you do it. And we were all telling each other, you know, I was telling them what to do and they were, they were offering their opinion, but doing it in a far more constructive manner. So I was lucky enough to learn from them. And like I said, I was lucky that 
my first job wasn't my last. You know, at New World, we had the option of making mistakes because we were kind of all, there wasn't a real leader, um, like a principal percussionist who could say, you know, you're out of line, get out of here. It was uh, us trying to figure it out on our own. And he was kind enough to say to me, look, this doesn't work for me. You know, that was about the kindest way you could say it instead of you're crazy. Uh, I don't want anything to do with you. So I just got lucky that I had great colleagues. To well, it's, good. it's really good of you to share because I, you know, I've definitely seen it happen to other people. Their attitudes slow them down substantially. And one, one in particular, I know who he would uh, get to finals and the curtain would come down and the percussionist in the section would say, nope, we know that person. And they have a major, major problem. And supposedly, I mean, of course, I've never, uh, these are just stories I've heard from uh, percussionists, I know. But this, you know, this one experience who this, this guy, it just followed him for something like three years. And it just took, of it took something like three years of, you know, <laughs> good behavior to undo it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. or for or whatever you know so i think it's it's a uh, it's valuable um <laughs> that you shared it yeah i think there's i have a lot of sympathy because of that experience i mean maybe i i, I sort of got it more quickly than most people but i i credit my friend with saving me a lot of angst over the whole thing because he he just said you know he was just completely honest and normal and said don't do that you know <laughs> yeah well, Laurel, you just returned from a conference where you accompanied a horn recital. So why don't you tell us what you've got? I did. So I just came back at the beginning of the month from the International Women's Brass Conference, which I had not even heard of until <laughs> I was asked to play for uh, a solo horn recital. And the recital was actually interesting because it was um, her own journey through... Uh, healing from her own sexual assault. So she had all these monologues and then had picked pieces that sort of follow this evolution in her journey. And so it was um, a really meaningful thing to play for. And I, I was just at the conference for a day just to play this recital. But there was a, a workshop that happened like two hours before our concert. And so the two of us went and it's something that I wouldn't normally be drawn to because it was about being a woman in a man's world um, yeah. with the brass players. And, and I concluded that it must be much worse for women who play brass instruments than for us as percussionists because um, I've never felt the exact sort of professional uh, judgment that they were talking about. And so I think that's something I really want to acknowledge <laughs> is that I think percussionists are doing something right in that regard. But something that surprised me about this talk were three social psychology theories that the presenter mentioned that come into play when you have some type of situation where whether it's men or women, you have less than 15% of one and 85% or more than the other. Okay. Just these certain things are going to come into play. They were, one, the solo status slash tokenism theory, uh, which is being the only one or one of a few. In each of these theories, I will mention, uh, she does list the scientist behind them, and they're all published in the mid-90s. 
The second theory is called stereotype threat, which is fear of confirming a negative stereotype about you. So like my experience, this was fear confirming that I'm not a great choppy rudimental player because <laughs> I wasn't. What? I you've had got, great you've time. Got, you've got hands. I had dude. the best time. Thank <laughs> you. And my hands are fine, but I, you know, I can't pay cheese book and pat a fla macaroni cheeses, whatever. And um, so that, that contributes to some type of social work. Uh, the third theory is called the self-efficacy theory, which means that we all just pursue those things and that we believe we'll find success. And this is often influenced by, you know, maybe tiny successes we've had earlier in life, in childhood. It's influenced by role models. So Ben's question earlier about who did you see? And, you know, I thought, okay, Keiko, okay, Vida, okay, Ruth with Zappa. You know, there's Nancy. Like, there's there's quite a group now that you can really look up to. Um, And then the third thing about self-efficacy was controlling how you receive negative feedback and realizing that, you know, feedback is not a judgment on your value, that kind of thing. But yeah. the, the particular um, social practice that she talked about that really struck me and was a complete surprise and I found almost such relief and joy in hearing had to do with uh, a study that was performed with this group of men and they were talking to them about what happens when a woman walks in a room? Do you size her up? Can you tell things about her? And in talking with this group of men, they found that there were four roles that they decide women fill or that they perceive this woman is filling based on her appearance. So in, then, a, so in a social setting, they found four, like, character types, models that yes. that women fit. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so you look at a percussion studio of, like, 20 students, and you've got three women. Each of them will appear to fill one of these four roles. And the four roles are, uh, one is a mother, so you're very helpful really receptive to what everyone's doing you tend to take care of everything around you Uh, you're the responsible one the second one is labeled the seductress so you're valued for your looks you're very flirtatious that's ben on the podcast (laughs) yeah that's his role you like you like the attention that comes from your looks yep the third is the the kind of kid sister like the funny quirky one who's always entertaining and never trying to assume too much, you know, about her role within the group. And the last one is called the Iron Maiden, who's the one that staves off advances, like doesn't put up with that, and often kind of isolates herself and just shuts them off, like can be around them, but shuts them off. And as soon as I heard these four roles, I had this reaction of like, oh my God, I was the Iron Maiden. And in my mind, I call her an ice queen. I don't know why, but it was like, yes, I was the ice queen. That's how I survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was it was such an interesting experience. And this is just, you know, they're, they're kind of just arbitrary words chosen by these scientists. But they're very telling. Did you, did you get a feeling they were talking about when 
like let's say you're socializing with a lot of brass players or percussionists or in the orchestra in the professional situation was it both i perceived it as both if not a little more professional minded and was it was it specifically music because i know I, i did i did that topic on confidence competence which was tied into a, a lot of studies with women in the workplace. So did they, would it work in the well, office this, setting This too? was a study with um, like adult men. So I would think it was also about like corporate right. situations it seems like and usually... business and yeah. Like but and, why, and why not? I mean, it situation. feels like the, the atmosphere is the same, right? I mean, a, a business environment, a percussion studio is a, a business-like environment. Oh, yeah, right? regardless. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing is like whenever you're, you know, if you're in the 15% or less population of your workplace. Mm, right. And, you know, and if that, in this case, if that is female, less than 15%, that they tend to fill one of these four roles. So I was like the motherly ice queen. That's how I survived undergrad. I don't know if you like hear this, Patty, and you're like, I was this. <laughs> what, what it made me think was that it kind of changes over time. Because for me, I've been in a situation for 25 years now that I've had tenure, or at least 23 of those years. And things certainly change. I mean, you talk about, I had to be this to survive. So that would apply more to a situation where you're unsure of your role. That makes perfect sense to me. You're an undergrad or you're a New World Symphony or you're a freelancer. So that makes perfect sense. But I think when you get into a situation where you can't get fired pretty much no matter what you do, you think differently. (laughs) So I think, well, maybe I'm a little more mother than anything else. Like if we have subs that come in, I certainly will try to, you know, I know how it feels to be, a sub or to freelance it's really hard so i mean i'll try to make them comfortable so maybe it's more of a mother you know at my age well, than well, anything and you, else and you i mean judging from your book and the things you choose to share i mean you clearly have a lot of empathy for and and, uh, and sympathy for how difficult this this is I and mean, a lot of people might write the same book and just talk about how how awesome they were the whole time and how, you know, so, I, yeah, that, that shows. I guess I to be honest, you know, I, I didn't feel that, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The conference did, I, I found myself, when I was driving home from it, I thought, man, would something work like an international women's percussion conference? Because to my knowledge, we don't have anything like that. I mean, they've just started the kind of women at PASIC, women in percussion conversation which i admittedly have not attended i don't know if that makes me a bad feminist or not but um so this is a specifically uh, what's the name of the conference again like women in brass yeah the international women's brass conference and this was the 25th anniversary wow of it so it has been happening a long time yeah that's interesting your your takeaway was that they're that they have a really hard road being women in brass. It just seems harder than harder. Yeah, interesting. Than women in percussion. And maybe that's because, you know, percussion, there's enough variety that with all of us, we can each kind of be our own person. I don't know. And maybe like, no matter what, if you play a trumpet, it's like loud and right. an <laughs> egotistical sound, no matter what, you know, but yeah. some people say like, marimba is a very feminine instrument and yeah, that's a really 
Like, it yeah. is. I don't know, but yeah. It I, was I just, just it was that very interesting. Sense. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's the end of my of my little talk. That was the end of the. It, it, that's a good question. Would percussionists respond well to that or not? Because there was that get women more involved event at PASIC, like a like seminar, mm-hmm. little just in one of the rooms. And I've, I've heard mixed things about that. Some people saying, oh, no, it's, you know, to identify it as an issue that needs work is actually counterproductive. Or, or, you know, you just hear people say different things than other people say, oh, yeah, it's like a really great idea and it's really important. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't well, know. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, and they, you know, speaking with just, yeah, some people who do a lot of PAS work, they say that a lot of women don't apply and I was like, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm like two for seven on my basic <laughs> applications. Like I've applied seven times. So I don't know who you're talking about. And I know a lot of people my age that have applied for things. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so it's, um, yeah, it's perhaps interesting. We're not going to solve it right now, but yeah. Good try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, Patty, here's, a, here's just kind of a mellow question. What's happening with the opera right now i know you have a matinee every sunday right now we do we have a la boheme tonight oh, and great. interestingly of course i i have to be a boy to go on stage because they didn't really have drummer girls for the little banda that marches through at the end of the second act there's uh-huh. about 20 seconds of a banda that comes through and we in in our particular iteration we have four trumpets two piccolos and two drummers and my partner in crime tonight is another female percussionist so we have two drummers marching across stage pretending to be boys i guess you know they make us look as masculine as possible stuff our hair in a hat so i I play in the pit and then i go change play this on stage Mm -hmm. and come back into the pit it's a lot of fun i love stage drumming things I just wear the costume the whole time, personally. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you act like a boy when you like carry a drum, scratch your crotch? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) you like adjust. (laughs) You know, that's about all I can do. Actually, we—I mean, mostly what we're doing is fighting for space because I I let my friend Mackenzie; she goes first. I'm like, you go because she's fighting for space. I mean, literally, there are hundreds of people on stage, so we're. We're just sort of trying to get ourselves out there without getting knocked over. That's our only concern. Then we stand there and face the audience and play and march off. That's that's all. Twenty seconds of fame, but it's so much fun. <laughs> Great. You talk There's, about uh, yeah. you, you talk about playing cymbals in your NPR interview, and I think what do they play? They play some Tchaikovsky. You do some cymbal crashes, and yep. I think they I think it was eighteen twelve overture. Honestly, I can't remember what it was. I don't remember either. I listened to it very recently, but you had these, like, yeah, I mean, it was a great recording with just excellent sounding cymbal crashes and very prominent cymbal crashes. Is that still your favorite thing to play? I, to do it. I just really love it. It's kind of, um, it, it doesn't feel very risky, you know. There's, mm. As we know, there's. it's not like playing Kiji or you're not walking on eggshells. You're not hitting right notes. I mean, you can put it in the wrong place, but... Um, it doesn't feel that risky to me. It's just a lot of fun. And especially when there's something about opera, when you have people who can just bury you standing 10 feet from your head. I mean, these, these singers, they could just bury us with their voices yeah. and they're so close. So there, there are just hundreds of people involved, you know, between chorus and soloists and orchestra kids chorus. Sometimes it's incredibly exciting to 
to play something that you're trying to match that volume and not even making it necessarily because of the mm-hmm. number of people. So it's it's a lot of fun to play cymbals. I could do that all day. I love playing cymbals. This is a, a great, a, a big, great contention between Laurel and I. She doesn't like it. I love it. Wow. What would you prefer? Mm-hmm. Laurel. To what? To symbols, yeah. Anything yeah. else. Oh, anything. Anything yeah. else, wow. Yeah. I think it's because I never developed good crashes. She's because, a good timpanist. Because I was always put on timpani. You're and a good, yeah. Like, I, I, unlike you, Patty, I always knew I never wanted to be in an orchestra. Mm. And, ah. and I, so the thought of, like, going outside and practicing crash symbols was just like, <laughs> I did it, but I just didn't enjoy it, so... I have to say the first time I learned playing crash cymbals loud was in a professional opera, Utah Festival Opera. Um, I I learned, oh, wow, like being heard is a, for the first time ever, a a challenge. Yeah. What do you got there, Ben? So I I have sort of an amateur question, actually. (laughs) Somehow in my schooling, I haven't done this on purpose, but I've always sort of escaped from playing opera. So... uh, my opera experience is that I subbed for exactly one rehearsal. Um, and that rehearsal of all operas to sub for was Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. No way. <laughs> and I mean, non opera person walking into that, it was just mind blowing. I was like, I did not know this was what opera could be. And if I did, I would have been way more into this a long time ago. So as a percussionist that plays in an opera, to especially younger players that aren't exposed to opera, what would be your like number one like check this piece out and I guarantee you'll get hooked on it sort of thing? Oh, oh, that's tough. But I'd have a list. Turn dot just can't be more exciting. The first half hour of turn dot, if you, if you're not thrilled by the end of that, you're probably dead. Um, we did Messiaen Saint Francis of Assisi, five hour opera with uh, eleven percussionists, I believe. And three of us, well, there were actually five mallet soloists. I was playing xylophone on stage. They had us on stage. That was my question. That's tremendous. You think five hours, uh, how, how long it would be? It just goes by in a minute. It's so exciting. Um, oh, no. Uh, Britain, anything? Uh, Noah's Flood, I was going to say. Midsummer Night's Dream, Billy Bud, um, Peter Grimes, any of those. Yeah. Okay, what am I missing? There's, there's a, I'm, I love Verdi. I love playing cymbals in anything Verdi. Uh, Don Carlos is one of my favorite all-time operas, the singing in that. So it, it might be divided between what is great to play as a percussionist and what is great to listen to. There are some of those that are, you know, might not have a lot of great playing for us. Like Don Carlos is just, you know, cymbal crashes. But to me, it's thrilling to sit and listen to that. So, um Pearl Fishers, a Bizet opera. I could do the whole rest of my life without playing Carmen ever again. I mean, they're they're gorgeous melodies, but I just can't hear them anymore. You know, that yeah. opera goes on and on. So there are plenty of things I don't need to play again, but that's my job. I'll do it. So, but that's, uh, curiously, no no Wagner on your list. Uh, Wagner's pretty thrilling. There's not a lot of percussion, yeah, so it's let's long see too. percussion. Per, yeah, per hour. You know, we're about to do the ring next, a year from now, once again. And again, that's thrilling because the singers we have for that are, are out of this world. They're the best you can get for Wagner. Um, so I'm, it, it's not a bad day to sit around and listen to. There's just not a lot of playing for us. I was going to say, uh, 
uh, Britain. I mean, not that I've played a ton of operas. I've done Carmen. I've done Madame Butterfly, um, which, yeah, was just... There were so many things in... And, and I don't know, I guess to any of our younger listeners that think opera's hard to get into, I, I think, man, every every opera I've sat in the pit in and had a, an honest chance to really hear everything... And Madame Butterfly is a good example. There are so many things I just never heard in recordings that yep, you, good you point. yeah, that you hear live. And I mean, there's like intricate harp counterpoint that doesn't, I don't know if it makes it out of the pit. Um, maybe sometimes it does, but um, yeah, sitting in there is just, I don't know. Yeah. You, you definitely can get into it for sure. Um, let's see. Well, I guess I guess maybe we can come back around to your book a little bit as we approach the end of the show. How, how has the book changed changed things for you as as a as a percussionist? Because I, I don't really know anyone else who's who's done anything quite like this. You know, we've all got our method books and people have their their CDs, but I, I don't know of this this kind of book specifically a memoir. I think what happened the most, the thing that was most surprising to me is the number of people who've come to me and said, me too, mm. with regard to anxiety, with regard to sexual harassment. It's been a real dialogue opener. Mm. And that's, that's a lot of fun. So it's just as far as putting the book out there, that's the thing that surprised me the most. And I really enjoy talking about it. I like um, giving book talks or t- talking like this it's fun for me. It's talking in a whole different way. You know, we're not talking about like left, right, right, left on Kiji or what do you do on, you know, on Porgy. We're talking about how we actually feel about playing music and that's a whole different ball game. So that's been really exciting. Yeah, sure. How, How do you feel about how your training was and how students training today is? Do you think there are things that we do better or things we do worse with regard to the training itself? Yeah, to pre- preparing to enter the audition circuit. I think it becomes more, I've been thinking about this a lot actually, like why are students and young players so unbelievable now? Like, I'm so glad I don't have to compete with younger players because everybody keeps getting better and better. And I'm thinking, well, why is that? And, I mean, I think with auditions, part of it is that in a way it becomes standardized And so in other words, you know, this is what you have to learn to take an audition. This is how well you have to do it to win an audition. In a way that becomes kind of standard. So your expectation is I need to play uh, Porgy like this a hundred times in a row. This is how well I need to do it. And um, once that's your expectation, you're you're going to meet that expectation if you expect to win. So, So maybe that's it. I still don't have quite the best answer for that, but I think about it a lot. What is it that makes kids so amazingly good and continually getting better? Yeah, sure, sure. What, what advice, if you have any, to, um, let's say, I've got to put an age on someone, maybe a, a, a senior in college about to, about to graduate and they're going to go to a master's program and they're interested in playing in the opera professionally? I think my advice now would be different than it would be even 10 years ago, which is that if you, if you have something you need to talk to someone about, don't be afraid to do it. Chances are they're thinking the same thing you are. Talk to your friends, talk to somebody you trust, a teacher, 
if it's about anxiety or harassment or um, any of those things that are that are troubling you, don't be afraid to look outside yourself and and seek it seek someone out. And remember that other people are probably feeling the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of and people have even said to me, "Well, you look so calm when you play. You are just so calm and cool." And I think, no, I'm frozen in fear. You know, yeah. it looks like coolness. So don't don't hesitate to ask that person because you might be wrong and you'll feel greatly relieved when you realize we're all far more alike on the inside. That, that reminds me, like, do you guys ever think about the strut you're going to take, take out on stage before you play a concerto? <laughs> I have to look I have to look like I'm totally ready to do this, even though I'm freaking out. Yeah. It's amazing how you can look so composed, isn't it? Like, oh, that's not what's going on inside my head. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, great. Well, Ben, do you have a? I think you have a quote for us today. Yeah. So actually, I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's this, there's a video has been making the rounds on Facebook, uh, and it's like kind of Gary Burton's retirement video. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it's a really good video. You should check it out. And Casey, you were saying I don't know if anyone's ever written a book like this. Gary Burton has actually also written oh, a memoir. Damn it! Yeah, and, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to share, it's actually two quotes, and I was just kind of fumbling through my notes with it, and I found one from the beginning and one from the end that I wanted to share from Gary Burton's book, and I think it ties into what Patty talks about very well. So at the, toward the beginning of the book, he says, my philosophy was that the future would take care of itself if you took care of business today. And at the end of the book, he says, I'm not afraid of failure, I just want to try things. If they don't work out, I'll try something else. That's a wonderful quote. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Good job, Ben. Well, thanks, Laurel. Thanks, Ben. And Patty Nimi, congratulations on the the great book and just awesome percussion happenings and career. And thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Really like talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Okay, everybody, we'll catch you on Oh, the Big Celebration episode 100 mm-hmm. next week. Yeah, which if you're paying attention to the dates, you know we've already recorded. But sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> so, which is which is why I couldn't say that with much enthusiasm. But yeah, sometimes, as you know, we have to record out of order. So I'm really excited about that 100. Okay. Hey, uh, all right, everybody, take care. Thanks. <laughs>